Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Hi, good morning. I hope you had a great weekend and are ready for the new working week. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday, the 22nd of January 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China has called on all relevant parties to ensure the safety of navigation in the Red Sea, as analysts warn that Houthi rebel attacks on commercial shipping threaten the world's second largest economy. But Beijing stopped short of signalling diplomatic or military assistance to defuse the crisis in the waterway. China has vowed to rein in the expansion of its electric vehicle industry, just as the West braces for a flood of exports to enter the market. Xin Gubin, the, the country's vice minister of industry and information technology, said Beijing would crack down on disorderly competition among EV projects from local governments and new car makers. Mr. Xin warned that despite selling nine and a half million EVs last year, there was insufficient demand from, custom, from consumers to support the volume of new projects and said Beijing would take forceful measures to stop blind expansion. Japan's headline inflation rate fell for the second second month in a row to 2.6% in December, down from 2.8% in November, hitting its lowest level since June 2022. Japan's so-called core-core inflation rate, which strips out prices of fresh food and energy and is closely watched by the Bank of Japan, came in at 3.7%, slightly lower than the 3.8% seen in November. And the University of Michigan's survey of US consumers released on Friday indicated that consumers are growing increasingly confident in the economy and in falling inflation. The survey showed a reading of 78.8 for January from 69.7 in December. That's its highest level since July 2021. Sentiment among US consumers has soared this month, boosted by their year-ahead inflation expectations falling to 2.9%. That's the lowest since December 2020. And the longer 5-10 to year gauge of inflation expectations dipped to 2.8% from 2.9%. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Christopher Lee, partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. Providing a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. I've got plenty more business and finance news from across Asia in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 hit an all-time closing high Friday for the first time in two years, boosted by gains of big tech firms. The broad-based index closed at 4,840, up 1.2% for the day, and surpassing the previous closing record of 4,796.6, which was set in January 2022. Meanwhile, the Dow, which set its own record at the end of last year, added 395 points, or one. 1.1% to end at 37,864. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 1.7% to 15,311. The smaller, more tech-focused Nasdaq 100 gained 2% to also hit a record high. All three major averages are now in positive territory for 2024. The Nasdaq was the major winner on the week, gaining 2.3%. The Dow turned positive for the week, adding 0.7%, while the S&P 500 rose one2 
2% over the holiday shortened week. Small caps ended the week in the red, with the Russell 2000 down a third of a percent, the fourth weekly loss in a row. Three of the magnificent seven tech stocks, Meta, Microsoft and NVIDIA, all hit record highs in the final session of the week. Chipmaker NVIDIA, which has gained 23.5% year-to-date, rose 4.2%. And Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company ADRs were up almost 13% last week, and advanced micro devices was ahead by almost 19%. Treasury yields were higher every day last week, although they wavered Friday as traders passed a survey showing consumer sentiment hit its highest since July 2021. The yield on the two-year Treasury note, which is particularly sensitive to interest rate expectations added three basis points to 4.39%. The 10-year was down one basis point at 4.13%. The US dollar index was 0.2% lower Friday at 103 and a quarter and failed to benefit from the strong economic data. The Japanese yen was flat versus the buck on Friday at 148.14 yen. The Chinese yuan was unchanged at 7.1931 renminbi. Gold closed the week 0.9% lower at $2,029 an ounce. And the Brent crude oil contracts for March shed 0.7% to settle at $78.56 a barrel. Hong Kong stocks registered a third straight week of losses. That's the market's worst start to a year since 2016. The Hang Seng gave up early gains of 1% to lose 83 points or half a percent to 15,309 on Friday to near the lowest since October 2022 and taking the cumulative decline last week to 5.8%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index slipped half a percent to 2,832. That's the lowest level since May 2020. For the week, it was down 1.7%. It's eighth weekly drop in nine. That's not like Hong Kong stocks are going to rebound about 190 points this morning, according to futures markets, with the index starting around 15,500 this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. At the start of a brand new week, let's welcome our regular Monday correspondent, Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Christopher Lee, who's senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. Morning to you, Chris. Good morning to you, Peter. Hi, good morning. Let's start talking about the Chinese stock route. It seems to be accelerating as foreign investors are are selling out. As you heard there in the introduction, Hong Kong stocks, they registered a third week of losses. It's the worst start to a year since 2016. The Hang Seng uh, gave up early gains of 1%. It ended half a percent lower on Friday. It's at its lowest level since October 2022. Last week, the decline was 5.8%. The tech index lost 9.8% percent over the week. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index of Hong Kong listed Chinese companies slumped six and a half percent last week. That's its worst weekly loss since March 2023 and it takes it to October 2022 lows. It's declined so far in 24, uh, 2024 amount to about 11.1%. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite has slipped half a percent to 2,832. That's the lowest level since May 2020. And for the week, it was down 1.7%. It's eighth weekly drop in nine. Um, Alex, 
the, the meltdown in Chinese stocks, I think we have to call it a meltdown now, don't we? It just seems to be getting yeah. worse. And it's accelerated in particular after the China GDP data and also after Premier Li Chang's comments um, at Davos earlier in the week. W- what is it that's spooking investors at the moment? I think uh, this is a self-enforcing uh, downward spiral uh, happening already. So um, sentiment is super weak. I think the underlying assumption is that the China uh, is in a deflation uh, phase and then companies probably may need to cut price to compete. And if you cut price to compete, then that means your profit margin actually may, may decline quite a lot. And, and so does uh, the, the, the net profit. So that's why I think uh, people are very concerned about the um, consumer sectors in China right now. Mm-hmm. And of course, asset quality is always uh, another issue. So um, I think uh, the, the GDP figures actually uh, show that the uh, retail market actually is quite weak. So that's why the decline the accelerated a bit. So um, the underlying assumption is that uh, the China, uh, the, 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 the deflation environment in China actually is, a, is, a, is, a, is the major problem right now. And any signs of capitulation from investors? Of course. Uh, I think uh, uh, we are probably a little bit too pessimistic in the short term, but uh, as I've said, the fundamentals actually could have, could deteriorate quite fast. So um, this is still um, quite risky to, 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 to call for a bottom. Would you be a long-term buyer? Uh, I would wait for signs of improvement first, I think. Uh, this is uh, still too risky to buy, uh, buy during the decline. Okay. Chris, what, what's your assessment of what's going on here? My assessment is that uh, for existing investor, clearly this has been very frustrating and has been very disappointing as well. Because if you look at the numbers since 2021, uh, February until now, HSI is down more than 55%, right? Mm. So if you are an existing investor, you are actually losing more than half of your original capital. Now, you mentioned the Li Chang speech at Davos. I think he is obviously making a lot of um, positive uh, promises, right? He's saying that China is open for business and he is also pro-trade. And more importantly, I think he is trying to drive home the point that uh, this is actually an investment opportunity for new investors. And if you are not already in the market uh, and now this is a chance for you to consider, then I think he does have a valid point. Now, so as you know, the uh, KPI, key performance uh, indicator for many of the Chinese politicians is really GDP growth. So China has clocked about 5.2%. So the uh, 2024 expectation is roughly about 5%. So I understand that uh, the current sentiment is weak. So as a trader, there's a lot of uh, selling orders that we're seeing. As an investor, I think there's a point to be made here that going forward, there's value to be gained if you are going in now. The, the, the problem is, Premier Li Chang, he made all the right noises, didn't he? He said all the right things, but investors just didn't really seem to believe him. Why is that? Yeah. So I think we can go back to look at the earnings. And fundamentally speaking, yes, the stock market is down in the last two years and three years. If you look at the earnings of Chinese corporates, they are actually up. So there's data to back the, uh, I think, argument that uh, it is potentially an investment opportunity. So I think you have to look at the stock market and also the uh, fundamental uh, economy as two separate things. There are companies 
whose earnings are negative, but their stock prices go up. And we've seen mm-hmm. that in a lot of uh, companies. And fundamentally speaking, we see that some of the Chinese corporates are actually increasing their earnings. Now, we just need to have patience to let the markets sort it out to reflect in the stock market. Mm. Alex, one of the problems is we seem to be the, seeing foreign investors who we thought were pretty well as close to uh, underweight as they could be are still selling, aren't they? We've had about 4.6 billion US dollars of foreign money flowing out of China's stock markets um, this year. And if anything, at the end of last week, it, it seemed to be um, accelerating. But is, it, is this maybe for international investors just throwing in the towel now? Yeah, I think, of course, uh, they are throwing in the tower because everywhere actually is rising right now. So um, probably they switch to other markets which have uh, more momentum. And if you want to pay the China market, actually, you can go for some international names as well. So that's why I think uh, they are throwing in the towers because this kind of actually is gain momentum and this is a self-enforcing downward spiral right now. So I think that that's why the sentiment is so weak. And what was the disappointment with, with Premier Li Chang's speech? Is it, is it that uh, investors have been hoping for some specific government measures to try and boost um, the economy? Are, are they disappointed maybe that they're not hearing specific measures? Is that part of the problem? Probably, but this is very difficult to call for the right solution because right now China is facing several issues like that demographic situation and also deflation. Mm. So uh, this is very unlikely to have a policy solution for all these problems. So I think uh, from time to time, people probably may get disappointed. But one of the solutions they seem to have come up with is they're ordering mainland funds to first of all ban short selling, and then secondly, you know, state-owned uh, funds that they're being ordered to basically buy the market. But uh, that actually only uh, help a little bit. I don't think uh, people would be uh, genuine following their move, their actions because um they probably uh, based more on the, the investment decisions on earnings expectation. As I've said, um, right now, China is in a deflation phase and people probably would be quite worried about the earnings prospect of consumer companies. If they cut price, then then the, the, uh, the profit margin, the, the, the margin actually could could get hurt a lot. And, and so the PE actually is not as cheap as it seems. Chris, what did you make of uh, the authorities stepping in like this to get the national team to try and buy the market, um, telling uh, firms to, to sort of crack, uh, crack down on short selling? Is that really the solution to the, the problems of the market? So I am a markets guy, so I would not expect the uh, government to step in and have any major initiative to really help the stock market. I think fundamentally speaking, investors into, I think the Chinese market are really expecting to invest in the private sector and Mm. not investing in the uh, CCP or government. So if you look at the private sector, they are now generating about 90% of the urban jobs in all your first tier cities. So this is one positive aspect. And the second aspect that I could bring out to um, discuss with you both is really in the residential property market, because it is a very key driver of the uh, stock market. Um, So we have to differentiate what is so in the primary market versus what is so in the secondary market. So new home sales we know have been negative and also the new home prices have been negative in the last uh, year or so. However, when you look at the secondary prices of existing homes, the prices are actually up 
So, and that's because of a structural issue that uh, to buy new homes, uh, you have to pay in advance uh, 18 months almost. And also you have to come up with about 20 or 30% of the down payment. So structurally speaking, that is a um, current issue that is prohibiting the, uh, the, uh, the property market from recovering. So if you are asking me for some relaxation in terms of uh, rules and regulations, that is one area. But fundamentally, it is positive to see that the secondary market of existing homes, prices have been going up. Mm. But the, the the data that came out uh, last week on the property market, I mean, it was pretty grim, wasn't it? Month after month, we seem to be seeing um, worsening data from uh, from the property market, not really not really getting better. And, and the problem is, this crisis has now been going on for what for for three years or so. It is true that the new prices, right, the new homes have been declining about 20 to 24%. Again, this is the first, uh, um, uh, I think, um, um, market, the primary market. But we look at the uh, existing secondary homes, there's a sign of recovery. And so I think the market is testing investors' patience for the long term. Alex, what are your thoughts? Do you think uh, the the property markets, we've seen month after month of grim figures in terms of property investment, in terms of home sales volume and area of home sales, in terms of home prices, any sign that we're we're nearing a bottom and that may help uh, the market rebound? I think uh, it's still too early. Uh, probably um, in the first tier city, the situation would be okay. But um, in secondary or third tier city, I think uh, it's quite difficult to, 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 to rebound at all. I think uh, probably uh, the best situation is that we have uh, some stabilization in the first tier city. Mm-hmm. And and what could be the catalyst to, to turn the market around? What what could maybe um, calm investors' nerves, stabilize the market? Because clearly, ordering Japanese uh, firms to buy the market isn't really a long-term solution, is it? It may work for a few days, but it, it's not really the long-term solution. I think it's very difficult. As I've said, uh, the, the problem is uh, is a structural issue on debt and on demographics and also mm-hmm. the deflation. I think uh, the easiest one to handle probably would be the deflation expectations. But I think um, we need some strong catalyst to reverse the deflationary pictures. Um, otherwise, I think uh, we may only just have some kind of a short covering rebound, but not a very um, sustainable uh, recovery in the stock market. Mm. And of course, if you ban short selling in the first place, you're not going to get the short covering rebound. I think uh, at least we can get it on Hong Kong. I think mm. uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong will not point source selling, and Hong Kong actually is a market with uh, a lot of derivatives. Yeah. So probably Hong Kong source squeeze would have the sentiment. Chris, what what could be a catalyst in your mind to to stabilize the market, turn things around, attract foreign investors back into the market? Well, structurally speaking, I think uh, the leverage level is still pretty low. So I don't think there will be a uh, Lehman type situation. So I think going forward, right, you know, having the um, the debt level uh, at the banks manageable and uh, not having the uh, the the mortgage uh, crisis, uh, these are the key factors that will help stabilize investors' confidence. Again, I think, you know, going back to the point that we discussed earlier, that the private sector and also the the entrepreneurial, I think, spirits uh, in the local economy are going to attract the foreign investors. Mm. So if you are talking about any government um, 
initiatives, it has to be in terms of improving the uh, the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem and also encouraging more jobs to be created by the private sector and also boosting the corporate earnings. Those will be the key factors that will attract foreign investors like us to go in and uh, really invest in equities. And the problem is foreign investors at the moment, they believe that the Chinese government's policies aren't very favorable um, to private firms, to creating jobs, to allowing firms to be entrepreneurial because there's all these regulations that can come out of the blue and, and stifle um, that. And, and the environment in particular isn't very uh, favorable to share uh, to shareholders of those companies either. Chris? Yeah, the good news is, uh, well, again, I think Li Chang is trying to make the first point that uh, China is open for business. So they are, again, welcoming the Italians, the Germans, the Spanish people and people from Netherlands and also Malaysia to uh, visit China. At least they are helping the tourism sector. Mm. So with more foreigners on the street, I think the sentiment will improve over time. So I would just need to give them some time. Alex, what's interesting is where the money's been going instead. We've known about Japan and uh, India for a while. Also, Taiwan, the end of last week, seemed to be attracting a lot of um, foreign investment uh, money, particularly after the, the results from Taiwan Semiconductor, didn't they? Yeah, of course. I think Taiwan actually basically is an AI story. So mm. uh, apart from Semi, I think uh, they are not too much uh, to invest in Taiwan. So, and but of course, uh, semi actually play a very important part in this Taiwan stock market. So, I think uh, Taiwan is a different story. It's just um, uh, basically supported by one sector. Well, were the results from TSMC a surprise? Uh, it seemed to have sparked a real um, uh, jump in chip stocks around the world, actually, didn't it? Not just in Taiwan, but in the in the US and elsewhere as well, South Korea. Yeah, I think uh, this is uh, another one of uh, AI infrastructure story right now, uh, actually in the US and in everywhere in the world. Um, and actually, NVIDIA started to run and then, and, then, and then AMD and TSMC actually added the field. So I think uh, right now people are still super optimistic about the, uh, the cycle of AI investment. So probably um, companies like Meta actually are just uh, uh, investing a lot uh, in, in the AI infrastructure again. So I think that people are, are expecting this trend to continue. Are there many companies that are actually making money out of AI? I mean, we know for sure that TSMC is and NVIDIA is, but are, are there actually that many companies that are making money right now as opposed to maybe the potential of what they could do in the future? Yeah, of course, I think that this depends a lot of potential because um, right now uh, the monetization of AI actually is uh, quite limited. But I think uh, people probably are expecting uh ai actually would be built in on uh, devices so um that means uh, another round of upgrades that would be coming so that's why semi actually is so strong chris if, if you're not going to go to hong kong and china which markets around asia look attractive to you well, Taiwan currently is attractive. I mean, as you said, I mean, TSMC and also all the other chip stocks have been doing well. And uh, also, I see that the volatility and uncertainty on Taiwan has reduced. And uh, the election did not actually make an impact on the downside of the market. And the uh, Taiwanese, I think, um, parties have been very smart in terms of being strategically ambiguous about the their uh, political position. And fortunately, we see that the U.S. and also uh, the Chinese politicians are also strategically ambiguous 
about the future. And so people want the status quo. And if they focus on the uh, uh, earnings and also the uh, the corporate performance, stock markets uh, will perform. So I think that's the right direction for all the politicians who are involved in the US-China-Taiwan situation. And what do you make of Japan? The latest Bank of America survey of fund managers said 59% of their respondents picked Japan as their favorite market in Asia. And we saw um, a lot of money last week continue to go into Japan, another $6.5 billion, despite um, Tokyo stocks already at their highest level in 34 years. Uh, Are you positive on Japan? Well, I think there is a currency play there, right? At this, uh, you know, currency level, the yen against the dollar. And uh, even if the corporate uh, performance were to be the same, I can still make money just with the uh, strengthening uh, of the of the yen in the future. So I think there's a short-term currency play there. Mm. Alex, what, what are your thoughts about Japan? Is it becoming overheated or is it still providing value? I mean, the topics is 15 times expected earnings. Doesn't seem too expensive yet, despite the rally. Yeah, I think uh, Japan still have some value. Um, I think people are uh, uh, underinvested in this country, and then uh, um, actually fundamentals are improving. Actually, they are they are trying to uh, upgrade the uh, corporate governance issue, and also um, Japanese companies actually are more ex- aggressive in expanding overseas. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you look at companies like Unico, actually they are doing quite well. So I think um, uh, the market actually has momentum and then also has got some value. So probably we will continue to see that trend to continue. And where in particular in, in Japan would you look? What sort of sectors? Oh, right now, um, actually, um, if you look at Japan, then probably um, the semi actually is doing quite strongly. Uh, there, there are two, two areas, I think. First of all, is uh, the uh, high-end manufacturing sector. And then second, I think, uh, is the consumer sector. Mm. Consumer sector actually is not doing too good right now because um, uh, of the Chinese situations. Actually, um, many brand names in Japan are, uh, are lagging behind the overall market. But I think uh, if you look at those companies which uh, can compete globally, I think there are values over there. So I think uh, uh, in, in the meantime, probably I would be more focusing on those laggards in the consumer names. Okay. Uh, Chris, let me ask you about the U.S. market. I mean, we've had another round of good economic news out of the U.S., falling initial jobless claims, soaring consumer sentiment, strong retail sales um, data. Uh, The data just seems to keep emphasizing, doesn't it, just how solid uh, the American economy has been despite um, the, the, the two years of rate hikes. Well, it's been good. And I think uh, we are seeing that the inflation is uh, under control right now. And also uh, we're seeing the interest rate uh, peaking and nobody is expecting any more rate hikes and people are expecting the uh, the rate to stay the same and also going down by 25 basis points and 25 basis point and 25 basis point again in 2024. So I think we are actually seeing quite a lot of optimism uh, here in uh, Silicon Valley. We are seeing, you know, a little bit of a recovery and also uh, i think you know to your point the magnificent seven right have done really well and uh, so people are still betting on the nvidia betting on the amd and also intel seems to be improving as well and when do you think we can see the first rate cut in the u.s if at all i would put my money on probably the end of first quarter 
Oh, really? As, as soon as that? Okay, because that, that's, that's been the, um, that was the anticipation at the end of last year. But people, investors seem to be scaling back their um, expectations for rate cuts at the moment, don't they, in the US um, and Europe as well, to, to maybe the summer. But you're still optimistic it could be the first quarter. I would not fight with the Fed. I think uh, this is the expectation of the Fed. Okay, Alex, what what are your thoughts on the on the U.S. Uh, market? It it seems to have been um, held back a bit, doesn't it, by by the fact that um, the, the the rate expectations are changing. But nevertheless, you know, we're at new all time highs, driven almost entirely by the technology sector. Yeah, right. You're you're right because uh, the Russell two thousand actually has been lagging behind in this round. So um, that's that's why people that's. Uh, indicating people are, are changing a little bit on the uh, rate cut expectations. But I think uh, people do not mind uh, the timing of the rate cut uh, as long as the overall direction is uh, going lower and then actually um, the AI story uh, uh, is still intact. So I think uh, US market actually would still be uh, quite strong. And and also fund flows are very um, are favorable right now, I think. And so I think the uh, US actually would be okay. Uh, the way cut expectations uh, do not matter too much, actually. It's just a timing issue. Mm. But the, the, the rally does seem to be slowing, doesn't it? Because the S&P is up about 1.5% in January. In the last two months of last year, it was up about 16%. So it does seem to be slowing down. Yeah, because uh, this one is uh, mainly focusing on, on, on tech only. Uh, mm. The other parts of the market actually are lagging behind. So we are not seeing it across the board. Uh, upside right now, but I think uh, eventually people will try to diversify. So um, probably uh, we may see momentum to pick up again. So uh, of course the market uh, momentum actually is slowing a little bit because uh, uh, the, the 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 breath issue and also um, I think uh, the the high level actually makes some people a little bit hesitate. But I think uh, overall the trend is still up. So despite the fact that there's just this one sector out of 11, which is the tech sector um, rallying, if you look at the equal weighted version, the S&P is actually down 1% so far this year. But you you feel that um, there's there's room for this to broaden out? Yeah, I think so. there would be um, room for broadening out. For, for broadening out. I think uh, if you look at the pattern uh, in the last two months of last year, actually, people are diversifying uh, after a run of uh, pet strength. So I think uh, that probably is going to repeat. Um, I think uh, the catalyst would be uh, a slowdown in inflation. If we see do see some um, slowdown in inflation, I think they, they would try to diversify. Right now, they are not because uh, the latest run of CPI actually is not that favorable. Mm. Oh, Chris, what are your thoughts? Uh, just one sector out of 11 really taking the market higher, which is the tech sector. Uh, the other 10 mm. haven't hit new all-time highs yet. And as I say, if you create this equal weighted S&P 500, where every stock has an equal um, weighting, that index would actually be down so far um, this year. Mm. So this is so far um, a, a rally that's very dependent upon these mega tech stocks. In addition to the mega tech, I mean, I would still be optimistic on some of the uh, restaurant stocks and some of the other consumer names. So uh, uh, Chipotle is a name that a lot of people love in mm-hmm. California, serving very good Mexican food. And a lot of the fast uh, um, food restaurants have also been, I think, experiencing uh, you know increasing flow and also uh, more uh, uh, high-frequency traffic. And so 
I am not just betting on the tech side. I am also betting on the increasing consumer spending, and in terms of restaurants and some of the um, uh, the long term uh, uh, just consumables. So I would say that other than tech, I would still be happy to buy some restaurant stocks and also some other hospitality hospitality names. And can the market withstand rising bond yields? We've seen uh, now the, uh, the 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 bond yield, the ten year bond yield, rebound from the sort of the lows. Uh, that it hit in the in the final quarter, it's up about fifty basis points from from its lows. Um, can the market withstand that? Well, that's why I'm expecting rates to come down a bit more, uh, and as soon as the uh, the end of first quarter and also uh, uh, beginning of second quarter, I do hope that the interest rates uh, will come down, and uh, as a result, uh, uh, bond yields come down, and then it will lower the borrowing costs a bit more. So that's the expectation that I have, and I do think that other than uh, tech itself, some of the other uh, consumer names will also have good potential. Mm. Alex, what what are your thoughts about the bond markets? Uh, we've got the ten year now at about four point one three, four point one five percent. So quite a big rebound uh, from where it was at the end of last year. But last- uh, how, how much of, of a drag is that going to be on U.S. markets? I think in the meantime, it is dragging uh, uh, the the Russell two thousand and and some parts of the equities. Um, the bond market performance actually reflected that. Um, the, the 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 data we've seen this year actually are not too favorable for rate cut. Uh, we have a, a relatively resilient job market and the CPI is actually a little bit sticky. So that's why I think uh, the performance of the bond market actually is uh, is a little bit weak. And then, but uh, if you look at the performance on the equity market, they are supported by the AI story and people don't mind about uh, uh, a delayed rate cut. Probably, um, I think uh, that will not drag the overall market. But um, we need to see some catalyst in the inflation uh, picture to spark a uh, across the board recovery in the in a, a across the board uptrend in the equity market. And do you think we're going to see that? I mean, this is going to be the hard part now, is it? Getting inflation actually. lower. I I don't think uh, inflation will be that sticky. Uh, uh, very likely, China would export some deflationary pressure to the world, and then I think. Uh, uh, with the advance of tech and also the popularity of companies like Costco, I think uh, uh, we are likely to see the inflation picture to to come back. So uh, in the world, actually, so they would bring down inflation. So I think uh, uh, inflation actually is not uh, that sticky. Chris, final word to you. This is a big week, actually, isn't it, for for central banks and monetary policy decisions. We've got the People's Bank of China uh, deciding on the loan prime rates today, the Bank of Japan decision tomorrow, the Bank of Canada on Wednesday, and the ECB um, on Thursday. And then we've got US inflation data on Friday. Do you think we're going to have a much clearer picture by the end of this week of where inflation is, is likely to be heading and the direction of interest rates? Well, as I said earlier, that I think inflation is under control, and uh, the key benefit is really that uh, you know if China is really exporting some of the deflationary pressure to the U.S., it will mean that some of the low-income families in the U.S. will enjoy cheaper goods and also uh, cheaper uh, imports from overseas. And so as a result, it will uh, just, I think, help the average uh, working class. And uh, I do hope that uh, the um, uh, Fed is uh, executing its plan of also uh, reducing uh, rates in 2024 so that, uh, you know, cost of lending will be lower and then uh, it will mean that uh, more uh, upside for uh, for stock market and also for the average worker. 
Well, thank you both very much indeed. You heard there Christopher Lee, who is senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments, and also our regular Monday morning guest, Alex Wong, director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Ben Cavender, who is Managing Director at the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. Morning, Ben. Good morning. Uh, the route in Chinese stocks seems to be accelerating, doesn't it, if anything? Hong Kong stocks down for a third uh, straight week. It's the worst start to a market, uh, it's worst start to a year uh, since 2016. The Shanghai Composite's at its lowest level since May 2020. Things seem to have been accelerating since we got that China economic data and after President Li Chang's speech also at Davos. What's gone wrong? I think it's just really setting in both with institutional investors and retail investors that there just isn't a whole lot that's propping up confidence in the economy here right now. It's it's becoming increasingly clear that you know across all sectors of the economy, there's a lot of work to be done and that it's actually difficult for the government to really probably do enough to turn things around quickly. Consumer confidence is still quite weak, I would say. People are out spending, but they're being much more careful about how they spend. Real estate market, I think, is the big depression point for uh, you know a lot of people and a lot of businesses here. That doesn't really seem to be normalizing the way a lot of people were maybe hoping it would normalize. And then, with with exports still being quite weak, um, there just aren't a lot of positive signs. We know that foreign investors have been negative for a while, and they're very underweight now. And if anything, they've they've, they've been increasing their selling. But what about domestic institutions on the mainland? What is their sentiment like towards the markets? I, I think you know, with a lot of these groups, they're really taking a wait and see approach to see if perhaps the government maybe is going to be prodded into doing a little bit more to support the economy. And right now, the signals have all kind of been from the government that, well, maybe we all just sort of need to buckle up and get through it together. And we're only going to take a measured approach towards growth. And and that seems to be the message. And I think from the investor standpoint, then you look at stocks here, you look at company performance here, and there's still this perception that maybe things are a little bit overvalued still because the the growth story that existed pre-COVID maybe isn't quite so clear anymore. Uh, so, you know, we'll probably see some buying back into the market, things things turning around a little bit this year, but I'm, I'm not expecting any kind of amazing rally because there just isn't any news to support it or any underlying feeling to support it right now. I mean, the, the one plan that the government seems to have come up with is to basically to try and stop brokerages from selling shares through this window guidance. You know, they've told brokerages to go and buy suspended short selling um, for clients. Is that really going to work? Well, I, I mean, it, it works insofar as they can put pressure on a lot of funds that, that have some, some ties to the government and say, listen, if you don't fall in line, it, it's going to be very difficult for you to conduct business going forward. But that doesn't really solve any underlying problems mm. because all it does is, is create this sort of art, artificial element to, to pricing in the market. And I think at this point, most investors looking at China realize that that has already been happening. And so um, it's not going to be enough, certainly, to convince foreign funds to come back. And it's probably not going to be enough to convince mom and pop investors either, because they just don't believe that the numbers are real right now. And also, I presume it's not very good for the fund management industry overall in China, where you know you may have clients who want to redeem and you can't do it for them. So presumably, they're going to take a loss. They're being forced to issue new funds at uh, completely the wrong time. It's, it's not great for the it, industry, it, it, is it? it? 
Yeah, it, it creates a real knockdown problem because they 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 can't make the the trades that they want to make. Uh, so clients are understandably unhappy. But then it has this knockdown effect of basically telling people, well, listen, we can't really invest freely in the Chinese market. So why should we buy into any kind of a growth story? Because even if there is a growth story, we're still taking too much downside risk if things go bad and we we can't actually get our money out. So I, I don't think it helps anybody to have so many locks in place on the market. And what could be the catalyst that could turn all of this around? Well, I think, you know, I think at some point this year, the hope is that the economy stabilizes to the point where you do start seeing a little bit of new growth in terms of job creation, a little bit less pressure on government budgets, hopefully, and that as a result of that, we start seeing a little bit of stabilization in real estate, stabilization in um the consumer economy and consumers start spending again domestically. I think if that happens and if the government does sort of actuate on some of its stated support for smaller enterprises, we'll start seeing hiring pick up, we'll start seeing consumer confidence improve, and then I think you'll see a bounce, especially in consumer brands. But that's a lot of ifs for that to happen. Mm. And it could take a while for that to happen as well, couldn't it, in the, in the meantime? Yeah, this is, not a, this is not a Q1 things get better type of situation. This is probably middle of the year or sort of the back half of the year. And what did investors make of the, the GDP data? We saw the Chinese economy, according to the official statistics, they, they were saying it expanded 5.2% year on year. Even that didn't seem, which obviously beat the official, um, the official target, but it didn't seem to uh, impress investors either. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where the government has been hitting its stated targets for so long that from an investor standpoint, it's kind of like, well, the number is going to be whatever the government says it's going to be, whether or not the underlying feeling in the economy sort of supports that number. So I think there's a little bit of a credibility gap right now. And I think when you are an investor looking at the market here and you're doing interviews with companies or consumers on the ground, that the sentiment is probably that while the economy is certainly improving, it maybe doesn't feel like a, a happy 5.2% growth. And then I think the other issue here is the way that those numbers get calculated. There's a lot of back calculation done around pricing as well. So, so you know, building in or backing out certain numbers to create a real GDP number. And I think that the government has a lot of leeway in, in how much inflation or deflation they, they take out. And so the number may be 5.2%, but it might actually feel more like yeah, I've heard several sort of versions of what that number could be, partly depending upon what you want to make the GDP deflator um, and, and, you know, get the real growth rate to. And also there's there's question marks over the amount of investment in things like infrastructure uh, uh, and manufacturing also, which um, worry people. So, you know, I've, I've heard a whole range of, of figures as to what the real target could be, anything from one and a half percent to maybe three or four percent. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a it's a moving target. It's what I can say, you know, speaking with clients, speaking with with companies across a pretty you know wide basket of industries here, and speaking with consumers, is that things are improving, but it's 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 not a situation where anybody is particularly happy right now. And I think there's a lot of work to do. Mm. And what about the the data that showed the uh, the population decline accelerating um, last year? Now down for two years in a row. How big a worry is that? I think it's a huge worry. I think, frankly speaking, demographics are 
one of China's biggest, if not their biggest problem right now, uh, because it, it creates a real issue with with pressure on the social safety net as the population ages. It creates pressure on getting the right skilled workers into the right jobs. And, and also, you know, you look at real estate, which has sort of been used as a major lever for economic growth over the past 20 years. We, frankly speaking, have too much residential real estate built right now and not enough people to actually live in it. And I, and I don't think it's an easy trend to turn around. Uh, you talk to the average millennial or Gen Z consumer here, and they're quite leery of having kids because they know mm. how expensive it is. So that's going to be a big problem, isn't it, for the authorities to turn around? There's no easy measure that they could take to, to go and reverse that. It's quite difficult from a cultural standpoint to reverse it at this stage. You know, the the typical playbook in a lot of developed economies would be immigration. And, you know, that's sort of been the model in the U.S. for a long time. And it's worked quite well for the U.S. Uh, China could could go in the same direction. But it's, it's a country that culturally has really been loath to do that. And I'm not sure that that's something that's really on the table right now. And even if it were on the table, I don't know how how well it would actually actualize. So... I think it's a very big challenge, frankly. Mm. And we also had, for the first time for a few months, data on youth unemployment. That was sort of reinstated, although taking out uh, young people who were still at school. Um, what did that number tell us? Did it give any sort of um, any satisfaction that maybe the picture in the for youth unemployment was improving or not? I, I don't know. My, my feeling is that the new number that came out is, is probably essentially meaningless because uh, the government's quite cagey as far as under the old measurement system, what exactly was or was not included when looking, I think, primarily at the student population. And then this time around, they've, they've taken some of those people out of the number, but it's not entirely clear how much. I mean, normally when a statistics bureau sort of adjusts how these figures are tabulated. They'll still provide the old measure, so you can actually compare directly to you know between the numbers to sort of see mark for mark sort of what's different. Um, but they haven't done that this time, so it's it's really difficult to know if we're actually in the same situation, better situation, or worse situation. Right now. And and is that one of the problems for foreign investors? Just getting information now on the Chinese economy is becoming increasingly difficult to either be able to allow to be allowed to have those figures at all, and even if you do get them, what sort of reliability you can put on them? Is this a worry that you're hearing for for foreign investors? It's a it's a huge worry. I you know I think. It, it would be fine if it was just the government numbers, if the government was completely transparent as to how those numbers were created. And if there was enough consistency in those numbers, that there was a way to actually cross-check them and, and determine how similar they were to other models. But right now, we, we don't really have good clarity on the numbers coming from the government. But then beyond that, it's quite difficult now to do actual primary research uh, as an investor to understand, you know, what's happening on one's own. And, and so I, I do think that creates a bit of a, a, a cloud and an opaque situation here, which, which does make it harder to, to plan and to feel comfortable investing. And of course, the National Bureau of Statistics is not an independent statistical organization. It's controlled by the government. Correct. Exactly. So we're, we're really sort of at the mercy of the numbers that we're fed. And, you know, in, in many cases, those numbers are probably close to reality or, or are realistic, but in some cases, uh, they have to still sort of be fitting a, a narrative or sort of in line with 
other policy decisions that are being made. And so it's very difficult to ever feel that we're getting the, the full picture on what's happening here. Mm. And, and one of the narratives that was being talked about at, at Davos by uh, Premier Li Chang was that this growth had come um, without taking on extra risk without taking on, uh, you know, without providing lots of stimulus. But yet, if you look at the debt to GDP ratio, and if you take, you know, total social financing, which is up 16 percentage points, it suggests there was rather a lot of um, stimulus, but it just didn't get an awful lot of GDP growth. Yeah, I, I think there there was more stimulus maybe than has been directly mentioned. I think that's one issue. I think the other issue as well is uh, probably the the level of debt that was being carried by local governments and by various you know very large state-owned enterprises or you know, real estate businesses was probably quite a bit understated as well because there's so many sort of parts of the economy that are sort of shadowed out in term, terms of you know projects and financing and lending um, some of which have do have you know tangential ties to the government and so I don't think anybody's really had the true picture of the level of debt exposure that the economy has had. And it's just becoming more and more clear over time. Ben, thank you very much indeed for your comments this morning. Always good to talk to you. That's Ben Cavender, who is Managing Director at the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Please take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 